Thank you for joining us as we bring you this worship service of 7th Avenue Presbyterian Church. Our readings this morning are from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Reverend Ananda Barclay is preaching today. Her sermon is titled, Moral Injury and Faith. As we continue to hold worship services virtually, we want to make sure the 7th Avenue community thrives and stays connected. I want to highlight a few upcoming offerings. This Thursday, July 16th at 8 p.m., we will have our first virtual gathering for small groups. If you are interested, click on the link in the announcements to be added to the small group mailing list. The following Wednesday, July 22nd at 7.30 p.m., we will have a Zoom Taze service, which will include communion. We invite you to have bread and cup for that. Sunday, July 26th, the last Sunday of the month, we will have a Zoom social hour at 11 a.m. An ongoing note, for those of you who are interested in participating in creating our worship services, we would love to hear from you. For details, especially around participating in the prayers of the people, please take a moment to look at our announcements. If you have been financially impacted as a result of the pandemic and are in need of assistance, there is now a page on the church website dedicated to receiving requests. If you prefer, you can also contact the church office. For our complete announcements, click the related hyperlink in your email. And now in preparation to worship, you are invited to quiet yourself, becoming still as you prepare to worship God. Creator of the world, eternal God. We have come from many places for a little while. Healer of humanity, God with us. We have come with all our differences, seeking common ground. Spirit of unity, go between God. We have come on journeys of our own to a place where journeys meet. So let us take this time together. For when paths cross and pilgrims gather, there is much to share and celebrate. Amen and Amen. Your spirit. 
compassion, we seek your wisdom in our lives and in our world. Grant us clear vision to see those things we have chosen not to see. Open our ears to those voices we have chosen to ignore. Open our hearts to the pain of those who do not share our blessings. When we miss your presence, forgive us. When we grasp it, we give you thanks. Make us an active people, powered by faith, lived out by our actions. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. In Christ, we are no longer strangers and aliens. In Christ, we are citizens with the saints in the household of God. In Christ, nothing separates us from God's love. In Christ, we belong to the commonwealth of God's love. In Christ, we are forgiven and welcomed home. Yes, alleluia, amen. A reading from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, starting with the first verses. In preparation for these words, let us pray. Holy God, wellspring of life, illumine our hearts and minds, that we might be refreshed by your words this day. Amen. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from, Ju from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, 
These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they had lived there for about ten years, both Malan and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons or her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that Yahweh had had consideration for the people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law. And they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May God deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. God grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait for them until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of God has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God.
second reading from the book of Ruth, listen for the word of God. So Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. My God do thus and so to me, and more as well. Even death part me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Now, Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I may find favor. She said to her, Go my daughter. Here ends the reading. Hi, I'm the Reverend Ananda Barclay. It's an honor and privilege to be with you all this Sunday in this way. Um, when Reverend Jenna invited me, of course, we had no clue being a pandemic. So uh, I appreciate um, the grace that you have uh, in looking at this recording. Uh, please join me in prayer. Dear gracious and glorious God, may May I be a vessel for you on this day, and may this sermon touch at least one person um, 
who needs desperately to hear your word. It is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So, we find ourselves in this long passage that I've picked out for this Sunday in the book of Ruth. The story of Ruth. Uh, I'm going to, well, before I begin, let me just tell you about this journey as a cradle Presbyterian. I just think y'all should know. So, if you like to take notes, this is a sermon to get out your pen, get out your paper. This is a note-taking sermon. Um, if you are looking for, you know, a high homiletic today, i.e. very classical form of preaching, I just already want to temper your disappointment. Uh, this style sermon is going to be uh, mid-homily, teach-preach. And um, finally, I want to say, I want you all to stick with me. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring us through. I'm gonna take us. I'm gonna take us down, but I promise there's a gospel, and I'm gonna bring us right back up. So I, I just want to name that and acknowledge that in the space um, to set your expectations. Okay. Now, I'm assuming you got your pen. I'm assuming you got your paper or your phone or whatever it is you like to take notes on. And thank you for allowing me to begin. The story of Ruth. Uh, what I love about the book of Ruth is that it's one of the few books in the Bible uh, named after a woman. And uh, I'm going to take an interesting critique uh, on the book of Ruth, and that is that um, this, this book of Ruth uh, is also uh, an impressive narrative that's been passed down from generation to generation and a story that's presented to us on this very day. So what do I mean by oppressive? So if you look at the patriarchal context of Ruth and Naomi, they're both widows. Um, and in being a widow, they are completely, uh, uh, completely cut off from any worth in society. Their lives do not matter, right? There's no way that they can put a roof over their heads as women. There's no way they can provide for themselves food, over, food in their mouths as women. There's no way that they have protection as women. And so uh, because of both the cultural, the societal, and the religious norms, um, Ruth and Naomi are left um, quite exposed and quite vulnerable to all, uh, all negative aspects that society has to offer. They're essentially rendered homeless without hope of a job uh, and, and uh, yeah, without hope of social mobility. And so in this patriarchal context um, and in this just devaluation of women, women mostly as property and uh, worth what they can rear um, in terms of children, we find Ruth and Naomi creating a, uh, creating a bond out of trauma. And so psychology would call this term a trauma bond, and a trauma bond is when an abuse, uh, somebody who is a victim of abuse uh, bonds to their abuser. And so in this case, uh, for our purposes of Sunday morning, the abuse is actually the systemic abuse of both Ruth and Naomi being widows and unable to care for themselves. And so they create this bond, this pact with one another that's so beautiful, where you go, I go, your people will be my people. Um, but what we see is this covenant made in trauma so that both can survive. Ruth, because Ruth is of childbearing age, uh, child rearing age, and we see from the text that Ruth is um, a good looking woman by those days' standards. And then Naomi, 
Naomi cannot rear any more children, but she has the kinsman redeemer. And so if we look at uh, the Hebrew Bible and uh, Jewish culture at that particular time, Hebrew culture at that time, the next closest to Ken uh, was required to marry in order to uh, honor the bloodline and keep the family lines going. And so in order for them to survive, they had to bond together. Um, and so, I, you know, it's a beautiful scripture and verse, but, but let's acknowledge that there's, there's a trauma bond that occurred because of systemic oppression um, and oppression is a form of abuse, right, that they face. I told you, we're going to get down in there, but I promise there's gospel. And so the traumatic crisis of these women um, placed them in a mode of survival. And so Naomi, throughout the book of Ruth, and I highly recommend you read it if you haven't. It's four pages, y'all. It's If you're not big on reading scripture, please read Ruth. It's it's worth your time. <laughs> Naomi teaches Ruth, you know, how to quote unquote sell herself um, within the legal frameworks and appropriate social customs of the law in order that they might secure a safe and dignified life. And so if you see throughout the story, Naomi coaches Ruth on how to attract Boaz, the wealthy kinsman redeemer. Um, so that way they might live a, a safe, um, and secure life. And so I, I want to talk about um, the otherness, too, of Ruth being a Moabite. So throughout the text, it always refers to Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. And so Ruth is never fully ingrained in, uh, into the, the Hebrew people. She's never fully welcomed. She's always referred to as a Moabite. So Ruth is other throughout the entire narrative of this story from beginning to end. And so this brings up to me, in what ways do we in society um, have oppressive systems that cause people to create contracts bonded in trauma, to create trauma bonds in order to survive? Um, in what way do we constantly other people, whether it be from the color of their skin, whether it be from their sexual orientation, whether it be from their uh, socioeconomic status, whether it be from their gender identity, that no matter what they do, they are always constantly othered, even when we ingrain them or welcome them into our space. Um, I think Ruth, the story of Ruth and Naomi is very powerful in this way. And so the story of Ruth, to me, reveals the creative ways in which people are forced to survive in contexts where their lives do not matter, and in contexts of societal and religious trauma. So I want to point out, this is not just uh, the oppression of the patriarchal society at the time. This is not just the oppression of the culture. This is also the oppression of uh, the Jewish tradition at that time. And so for us as Christians today, uh, the, the text begged me to question, with a hermeneutic of suspicion, what is the narrative of Christianity as compared to the narrative and the lessons of the book of Ruth? Uh, what has been passed down from generation to generation um, that has been a framework of oppression um, that has had the traumatic impacts uh, and realities imposed on people not unlike that which Ruth and Naomi find themselves in and having to go through. 
And so in doing some research and uncovering, I realized that Christianity, obviously, too, has stories of Christ passed down from generation to generation that have become social and dogmatic law that has continuously created marginalization and trauma to various peoples. And so just as Moses gave the Ten Commandments and the tablets, and we have the, the Deuteronomic texts and Leviticus to pass down uh, the law so that way people can live in right ways of God that over time can get distorted for power um, and ingrained into unsavory parts of the culture and society, so too Christianity has done this. And so there's a theologian, um, she's been around a very long time, by the name of Rita Nakashima Brock, a uh, famous theologian, one of my favorite folks. Um, and Rita Nakashima Brock, um, a lot of her work uncovers what was Christendom before uh, the Roman Catholic Church. So before Constantine converted to Christianity on his deathbed, thereby wedding the Christian church with Rome. And for she took about 10 years to write a particular book called Saving Paradise, which she wrote co-wrote with... Uh, Methodist uh, theologian Rebecca Ann Parker um, took them 10 years to write this, figuring out what what was Christendom. Um, and so I'm going to reference now a brief text of where where did the did did Christendom begin to go wrong in this spot? And so I began to wonder as Ruth and Naomi created a trauma bond out of their crisis and survival due to uh, religious uh, laws and cultural and social norms at the time, I wondered where does this start in Christianity? Because it definitely does. And part of my impetus is pre-COVID, uh, Sunday morning at 11 a.m. was still the most segregated day and time in the United States. And that clearly says to me that American apartheid is directly uh, not only impacted, but there has been some sort of traumatic contract made, traumatic covenant with American apartheid in the church. And I don't think that's like rocket science, right? And so Rita talks about um, that she and Rebecca Ann Parker identified a near destruction of a life-affirming Christianity in Europe, beginning in the ninth century with an imperial terror campaign that raised the risen Christ from the Eucharist and replaced him with the crucified Jesus so sinners could be confronted with their sin against the empire. Bishops terrified churchgoers with relentless preaching of hell, a toxic brew of unresolved grief, fear, and guilt, often accompanied by cruelty and rage, delivered a trauma-bonded faith that promised an otherworldly deliverance. And after two centuries of contestation, this trauma-centered version of ritual became so exclusive that rejecting it was deemed heresy. So finally, in the year 1098, Anselm of Canterbury authored the first systematic atonement theology as propaganda for holy war, and Europe crusaded for 500 years. So what's atonement theology? Atonement theology is Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, period. Um, and using the crucifixion to advocate for suffering Whereas Jesus was the premier, Jesus dying on the cross was the premier saintly virtue. And that's the only reason why God took human form was to die. This, this is substitutionary atonement. And killing and dying for Christ was the fastest way to enter into paradise, 
which was turned into uh, a walled-off post-mortem destination. And so to escape the malevolent maelstroms of wars and plagues in Europe, Christians in Europe went looking for earthly paradise elsewhere. However, it was closed. Conquistadors, mercenaries, and messianic aspirants searched, possessed by illusions of fountains of youth, take for example Ponce de Leon, and uh, a chance to hasten the apocalypse. Uh, interestingly enough, that was actually one of the goals of Christopher Columbus, and if we consider our fundamentalist uh, siblings in the Christian faith, that's actually one of their goals, is to hasten the coming, the return of Christ again. Um, and they were funded for patrons greedy for the gold that allegedly flowed through the rivers that passed under its wall. Papal decrees authorized conquest, colonization, slavery, witch burnings, and imperialism. And this avicarious violent faith made its way to the Americas accompanied by the doctrine of discovery, also known as manifest destinies, particularly in the United States, like deeply under President Andrew Jackson, so that Christian colonists declaring the land uninhabited could kill its inhabitants and take it for themselves and their patrons. To come to terms with this legacy, Western Christians must face the memory embedded at the center of atonement theology and address the moral injury embedded there. This is why I'm asking you to take notes. And so when I think of where did we go wrong, like how did we get from the most segregated day and time in this country being Sunday at 11 a.m., pre-pandemic and it's only messed up because of the pandemic has switched how we do church so that doesn't like we like the segregation did not american apartheid didn't magically wash away as we all know right but if we look in the history of our church how we've been taught the narrative of christendom that has been passed down to generation to generation has been tainted with this trauma bond and this trauma bond causes moral injury so what is moral injury moral injury is the term for devastating harm that cannot be integrated into our existing identity. It can involve the loss of trust that comes when authorities or people we trusted fail to do the right thing in high situations. Hashtag America. And such betrayal can lead to feelings of outrage, humiliation, and shame, and it might even precipitate post-traumatic stress. Moral injury also names the guilt remorse, grief, and sense of worthlessness that comes from inflicting harm, being complicit with it, or failing to prevent it even when that harm might have been lawful, accidental, understandable, or sanctioned. Our core moral foundations can even be challenged by witnessing or hearing about acts by others that violate our moral expectations of them. Working or living in high-stakes situations where making choices is highly constrained and no good choices are possible can also result in the slow destruction of our sense of being a good and worthwhile person. I wonder if sometimes I wonder if this is what Naomi and Ruth might have been going through. And finally, these multiple dimensions often coincide such that when conditions of life such as violence, poverty, injustice or high stakes work threatens us. We may violate our values in order to survive or to protect those we love. And I, I take this into consideration with the trauma bond that Ruth and Naomi have made uh, in our passage this morning. 
So moral injury is as old as love itself. And so hear me, when, when I think about moral injury and its clear implications uh, as it relates to Ruth and Naomi and them having to, to form this, this, this trauma bond, uh, this covenant um, in order to survive and for, for Naomi to coach and groom Ruth on how to attract Boaz within uh, the social um, and uh, legal norms of the law. Um, so, so Ruth and Boaz's marriage was not a marriage of love. It was uh, at best a marriage of convenience uh, for each of them in different ways, but surely it was a marriage of survival. Um, survival for Ruth and Naomi in particular, right? And it was sealed when Ruth was able to produce a male heir, uh, a male um, to the family bloodline who eventually becomes the great-great-grandfather of David and eventually right down the Davidic line. We also know that we get Jesus the Christ. Um, and Ruth this entire time is still referred to as the Moabite, right? And Boaz is just happy that he found a good-looking woman and was able to like honor his kinsman and kinsman redeemer, right? And so again, this is not a marriage really rooted in love, this biblical marriage. It's rooted in survival. Um, and so part of me wonders, um, you know, what happens to that moral injury within Ruth and Naomi after, uh, after they're married, after, after rather Ruth and Boaz are married, after uh, Ruth produces a son? Um, how do they deal with this trauma? Uh, it's a question I always have. Now that they have survived, what does thriving look like? Um, and so hear me. As we think about, uh, so, so I'm going to go a little bit further down and we're going to come back up. Um, and so when I think about uh, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning still being the most segregated hour in the United States pre-pandemic, and it's only the fact that the pandemic has rearranged how we do church that that has changed. Um, but the apartheid, the American apartheid is still there. So for me, you know, I... I don't think that white people are not traumatized by white supremacy. And some of y'all are triggered by the fact I said white people, but I think that needs to be said. So I think that white people are traumatized by white supremacy. And in my experience, having spent most of my life in hyper white spaces, i.e. 90% white and up, which means inevitably that I have been nurtured, cared for and mentored, not exclusively, but normatively, by white people my entire life, the majority of my adult life, for sure. And in the church, it has been the LGBTQ community, in particular the white LGBTQ community, but not exclusive, uh, who've cared for me, who've brought me and guided me with their queer lenses of questioning my faith and what I believe and the hermeneutic of suspicion within the scriptures and, and, and acknowledging what I know of God and having been created in God's image. It's queer people and allies who have affirmed the intersections of some of my identities, namely being a black queer woman, uh, two of which are somewhat obvious. Um, and so, you know, this Sunday, as we think about the history of the narrative of our faith that has been passed down to us, as we think about the moral injuries that all of us have, that the moral injuries that are caused by our faith, the moral injuries that are caused by society, and the ways in which we might have our own history of trauma bonds, or our family 
our families might have a history of trauma bonds or definitely the trauma bonds that we witness on the news and the moral injuries we witness on the news every day. I invite us all to question the normative practices that we've been given. With all the congregations I've served, all of them having been majority white, uh, Central Prez in Austin, Texas, 350 member plus church, Fourth Prez in Chicago, which is the second biggest church in the denomination. Uh, the, the last church I pastored was also a First Presbyterian Church, Palo Alto. Um, and I've yet to witness in all of these congregations that I have pastored or, or cared for, led in some way, I've yet to witness normative practice and rituals for my white siblings to grieve the overwhelming shame of the narrative of white supremacy which they have inherited and some of which, uh, through that inheritance and socialization, are, are co-opted into participating, and not some of which, we all participate in this narrative. And the overwhelming burden of being uh, the entitled and ideal human for the construct of American apartheid, which is not divorced from the social, economic, ecological, and religious realities designed right here in the United States, um, inherited from European Christianity. And I'm talking about the trauma bond of whiteness, created, forged, and signed by many a papal bull, by a, many a doctrine and statement of faith. The trauma bond of whiteness secured upon the narrative of the cross in the name of Christ. The trauma bond of whiteness so strong that for my white siblings, so often time when I bring up uh, race and, and privilege, uh, I have yet to find white siblings who can imagine what collective goodness can be embodied or looked like in white skin. And that white pride um, is almost impossible to imagine to be attained outside of white supremacy. That is a struggle at best. And to me, this is a great devastation because I believe that one can have white pride without being a white supremacist. And I think that is the big task uh, for those who are white in our country because you have to be able to love yourself if you love your neighbor and you have to see that you are good and created in the image of God and can produce that goodness you have to see something more than the trauma and the moral injuries created and done in your identity and in your name and so to me the question becomes as Western Christians collectively and uh, to the way the anti-Christological gospel was spread around the world through evangelical colonial trauma, that we have to finally accept the hard reality that to a certain degree, to be Christian in America and many parts of the world today is to realize our part, that part of our healing and discipleship is to heal the false narratives inherited from generation to generation of a trauma-bonded Christian faith. That I've, I'm convinced now that all liberations of theology, whether they be feminist, uh, womanist theologies, whether they're eco-theology, um, whether it's black theologies of liberation, um, are all theological arguments essentially seeking alternative narratives in response to the Christian trauma bond that was solidified in 1098 and then hyper-focused to the particular traumas witnessed here in the United States and in other parts of the world. Of, of apartheids, of oppressions, and the moral injury that has poisoned our spirits from communities ever since. And so my prayer for us, the gospel for us, is probably, it's, it's an obscure gospel that you might not uh, 
quite fully, fully imagine, but stay with me. I'm almost done. My prayer for us is that we understand the power and strength that lies in the needed rituals of grieving so that we may heal. My prayer for my white siblings is that they may begin the process of grief not out of shame, but to lay burdens down, to be humble enough to acknowledge what is so that your spirit, body, and mind can be in a place to rewrite the narrative of social and religious traumas that have been passed down that you have inherited, and to tell a new story from generation to generation, true stories of the good and liberating teachings of Jesus Christ, as those... Uh, as those who, um, when taught correctly and followed correctly, those teachings do not create or sustain trauma. Rather, they nurture and cultivate love on earth as it is in heaven. If the church taught correctly, we would not have Sunday at 11 a.m. be the most segregated day and hour in the United States. If the church taught correctly and did not perpetuate or inflict trauma. And so furthermore, I will say that I'm not satisfied with the end of Ruth's stories, you could probably tell. The stories of grief, of despair, of overwhelm must be told if we are to heal, friends. And the ways we experience the apartheids of white supremacy and other apartheids of uh, classism, other apartheids of uh, othering, othering, who are the Moabites in our lives? The ironic realities of oppressions is that they also cause moral injury, not only obviously to the oppressed, but silently, not spoken, they also cause moral injury to the oppressor. And it's still a framework of fear that repentance, i.e. turning away from, and resurrection, i.e. moving through and overcoming, uh, is not a possible form, that, liber that resurrection, um, repentance, isn't possible. And friends, we are Christians. We are an Easter people inherently. That is why we are Christians. And so we know that it is indeed possible. It is possible in the literal face of death. We are the hopelessly hopeful. We are the illogical hopeful. Hope in, in and of itself isn't really a logical concept to believe in something that is not. And so such is the audacity of our faith. And my prayer for us is that we believe in the transformative life and power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that we have courageous hearts enough to grieve the realities of trauma bonds that we have, and to grieve the realities of moral injuries that we have and that we witness, so that we can actually dig in and heal and move through so we can move on. We cannot just move on until we move through. May it be so. Thank you for allowing me to be with you all this Sunday and to preach this sermon. I'll be keeping you all in my prayers. Stay safe. God be with you. We believe in God, who meets us wherever we are, offering us all we need. We believe in Christ, who opens our hearts to new ways of living, 
who empowers us to acts of compassion. We believe in spirit, who enables us to do acts of mercy, who commissions us to be instruments of justice and peace. This we believe, amen. through the unknown with us, and for this we are thankful. We pray for this earth, our planet home, praying for the communities of birds, animals, and plant life. We pray your spirit upon all places of fear and hurt, that you would work through those offering care to those in need, work through those offering food to the hungry, work through those supporting the lonely, and work through us, dear God. We pray your spirit will bring peace and wholeness and new life. We also pray for those of our beloved 7th Avenue community 
those in need of support, those in need of healing, those in need of a friend to share joy and celebration. And we continue in prayer, voicing our prayers to you. God, prayers for change to our communities and our society. Almighty so God. That they may be places that, that are safe, respectful, and loving love, to all members. Prayers, especially those who are treated unjustly or with hatred, and that we may have your guidance to pray for those how to be a part of this change. We make these prayers in the name of the Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We are all just walking each other Just 
Our unity is not found in our conformity, but in our diversity. Go forth as bearers of this truth, as people keeping the faith. May the grace of God who created you in love, the peace of Christ who teaches it is possible to be love, and the power of the Spirit who calls you ever forward into new experiences of love be and abide with you this day, this week, and evermore. Amen. <laughs>